Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Well, friends, Merry Christmas once again. So glad you're here. So excited to be celebrating Christmas with you. And I just got to be honest, it is that wonderful yet annoying time of year because every time, especially for maybe some of the men in the room, every time you turn on the TV, there's a commercial, maybe a Lexus commercial, a GMC or a Chevy commercial where magically on Christmas morning, a brand new vehicle appears in the driveway with a massive red bow on top. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if that's you, and, and man, praise God, I, I just amazing if that's, you know, if that's your reality, it's not mine. In fact, if something like that happened for me on Christmas morning or I did that for my wife, probably go something like this. Um, I love this, uh, this cartoon. The car is a rental, honey, but you can keep the bow. I just wanted to annoy the neighbors. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. But you know, sometimes Christmas brings with it some expectations that are a little bit crazy, a little unrealistic. It's the hustle, it's the bustle of the season. And my prayer for you over the next 15, 20 minutes is that whatever you walked in with, whatever you're facing in life right now, that you would find just a moment of peace. You'd find a moment of reality, of truth in the midst of the chaos and the craziness of the holidays. It's my prayer for you. And friends, um, I've been preaching a Christmas Eve sermon of some form or another for a very long time. It's my sixth year preaching a Christmas Eve sermon here at Hills Church. And as a preacher, sometimes you come around to, I mean, no, I don't, <laughs> I wasn't looking for applause, but go for it. I'll take them. Praise God. Um, you know, but every year you come around to these moments and you're like, yeah, it's the same story. You know, what more can I say? But I gotta be honest, as I, I dove into the story again this year, as I began to look again this year, I stumbled across something that absolutely blew my mind. And I'm not exaggerating when I, when I say, if you're here today as a skeptic, or maybe you don't believe the claims of Christianity, maybe you think Christmas is just crazy, or Christianity is a, a crutch for people that need an emotional crutch in life, wherever you may be today in this moment, my request to you is this. Just give me the next 20 minutes of your time for consideration. If you're a Christian, my, my hope and prayer and what I believe is about to happen for you is your faith is about to be more strengthened than it ever has before because, friends, Christianity, unlike popular perception, would have you believe it is not blind faith. It's built on real, objective reasoning and reasons, and we're going to see that today in a way that I had never seen it before. And I started to kind of go down this rabbit trail in Luke chapter 1, verse 77 and following. It's an amazing Christmas verse. It says this, speaking of John the Baptist, says, you will tell his people, you will tell God's people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, friends, in case you didn't know it, God loves you. He has mercy 
towards you because of his tender mercy. The morning light from heaven, the dawn, the sunrise from heaven is about to break upon us. It's about to break upon the world. I love that description of the birth of Jesus as the sunrise from heaven. To give light, don't miss that word, light, to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. I started to think about this reality of the sunrise, of Jesus representing light. I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, I see the sun in the sky, but by it, I see everything else. Light is what allows us to see everything else that we see. And friends, I just want to say this to you here and now. What we're about to look at, what we're about to discover, proves what C.S. Lewis just said. If you are not looking at your life, your relationships, your reality through the lens of God, the reality of God and his son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, then your view of reality is skewed. It's off. And here's why I believe that, because friends, all of us walked in here today. All of us walked in here today, trapped and triggered by something or someone. Amen, somebody. (laughs) We're all trapped in some way or another, me included, in prisons of our own making, aren't we, right? Prisons in the mind where we wake up every day and we have scripts that we're listening to ourselves subconsciously, scripts of comparison or envy or anger or, or even self-hatred, thoughts in our mind that really they wake up and they plague us and we're trapped. We're trapped in our own actions, self-destructive behaviors that we can't seem to get out of. You know, we're triggered by certain things and certain people, nothing like the holidays to remind us of that. There's certain things in life that trigger us because of past emotional trauma. And some of these prisons, all of us in some way in our mind and heart, we we wake up and we're facing things that we can't seem to get out of, prisons we can't get out of on our own. And this is what we know of prisons. Friends, the door has to be open from the outside. You need someone with a key to come and unlock the door and let you out. And yes, you have to walk on your own two feet out of that door. But the reality of Christmas is this. Jesus himself said, I came to set the captives free. So if you're a human breathing in this room today, Jesus came to set you free, to allow you to write a new story, a next next chapter in your life through the redeeming work that he accomplished for you on the cross. Now, here's the deal. And I almost feel like this is so obvious, I don't even need to say it, but that doesn't work. That doesn't happen unless Hebrews 11.6 is true for you. Here's what Hebrews 11 verse 6 says. It says, anyone who would come to God, who would receive the freedom that God is offering, must first believe that he exists. You got to believe he's there. And for some of you, the biggest stumbling block in life is that you don't believe in God. You don't believe he is there. And so today, what I felt led to do was build a case for Christmas based on the fact that the Bible calls Jesus the light of the world. 
And I started, as I began down this rabbit trail studying this past week, I started in Genesis 1, chapter 1. Check this out. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, don't miss this, the very first spoken, recorded words of God that we have in human history, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, that got me off down another rabbit trail. Jesus, light of the world, Christmas, sunrise from heaven, light, okay, let me just throw light, just this reality of light into Wikipedia or Britannica.com. Here's what I found out. Without light, scientifically speaking, nothing can survive. Nothing can exist. Light is responsible for all life, the production of the air that we breathe, the cycles of our oceans, the creation of usable water, the magnetic fields which create our atmosphere. Light is responsible for gravity, who knew? For warmth and our weather, the light and warmth and even the atomic radiation projecting from the star, that's the sun, at the center of our solar system is responsible for all life on planet Earth, okay? Light equals life. Now we fast forward to John 1. It's one of the first gospels in the New Testament. So Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible, God says, let there be light. Now let's go to the beginning of the story of Jesus. And it says the same words as Genesis 1. There's a connection here, okay? John 1, in the beginning, same words, was the word, let there be light. And the word was with God and the word was God. Now there's a twist as John continues. The word was not just God's words, it was a person. It says, through him, all things were made. In him was life. Let there be light, let there be life, right? In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, Jesus, John 1 goes on to tell us Jesus is the light of the world. In him is life. In him is the lens that we see all reality. Now, we used to think, maybe you've heard of this guy, really smart guy, guy by the name of Carl Sagan. In the 1950s, we used to think, we believed, because Carl t told us so, he's smart, that there are two things necessary for life on earth. Number one, the type of star at the center of the solar system. Turns out for life to exist somewhere else in the universe, they need to have a star that is a G-type yellow dwarf main sequence star. Welcome to science class, friends. There's a whole bunch of different kind of stars out there. There are hot blues, red dwarfs, red giants, white dwarfs, neutron stars, the list goes on, but you need a yellow dwarf star at the center of your solar system if life's going to exist. So number one is the type of star. Number two, Carl says, that your planet, the planet that you're on, if you're alive or if there's life out there, has to be the right distance from that star so it's not too hot or too cold. Well, as our scientific understanding progressed, we discovered that there are, and I got some numbers for us on this one, roughly two trillion stars in the known universe, two trillion stars, and an estimated 10 septillion planets. Okay, 
I had never heard the number septillion before. It's 10 with that many zeros behind it. That's a lot of zeros. I think it's somewhere around 27 zeros. I'm not 100% sure you can count them later, okay? So according to Carl Sagan, two conditions for life, there's two trillion galaxies, there's 10 septillion planets. He says, for sure, there are aliens. Life exists out there somewhere, well, as science continued to advance, turns out Carl was wrong. Not just a little wrong, really wrong, unbelievably wrong. Friends, there are not just two conditions for life. As we have discovered more and more about life on earth, we have found and discovered scientifically thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things that have to be just right in order for us to be here. Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away, the leading atheist probably of our generation, along with Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris, never once during a debate or at any time in his public forums did Christopher Hitchens ever give an inch to the other side. He argued against Muslims and Christians and Buddhists and Jewish scholars, and never once did he admit that there is any evidence or any chance that a God or divine being exists somewhere out there? Until this one moment, after a lecture in New York City, of course, it would be a New York City cab driver, right? Turns around and he goes, hey, you're Dr. Hitchens, aren't you? He responds, yes, I am. He goes, all right, I've read all your books, listened to a lot of what you have to say. You got some really interesting points. Not sure if I believe in a God or not, but he said, you're really annoying to me, Mr. Hitchens. <laughs> Gotta love New York City cab drivers. You know, Hitchens says, why is that? He goes, because you, you never concede one single time that you might possibly not know something. And he goes, if there was just one thing on the other side of the argument for the existence of God, if there was just one point that you would in this moment, say, okay, that's probably their best argument for maybe there being an existence of God. What is it? Would you tell me what it is? And he has his iPhone on. He's recording this. And in that moment, Christopher Hitchens answered quickly and honestly. He said, it's a fine-tuned argument. The fine-tuning that one degree, well, one degree, one hair of difference in the fundamental laws of nature, then our very existence of life on earth would not be possible. You have to spend time thinking about it, working on it. It's not a trivial argument. We all say that. That means Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens sat around thinking about this together. We all say this. We all agree it can't be explained or dismissed. I read that in a book this year, and I thought, what is the fine? Why have I never heard of this? What's the fine-tuned argument? So here it is on a slide. I can show it to you. It's simply that there are certain things about our universe and about life on our planet that seem to be so extremely perfectly calibrated that mere coincidence is no longer a statistically viable option. Okay. As we find out more and more about reality, I came across an article written in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Physics and Psychology, and they were discussing this reality of fine-tuning. None of these brilliant PhD scientists who wrote the article were Christians by any stretch of the imagination, and they said, okay, we know there are four essential subatomic laws that have to work together perfectly in order for life to exist. Number one, the law of gravity. 
Theory of relativity, Einstein came up with that one, right? Number two, electromagnetism. Number three, strong atomic force. Number four, weak atomic force. Welcome to Christmas Eve, friends. Here we go. Okay, in this article, they said about the fine-tuning of life, they said for the production of both carbon and oxygen and everything that we have in the universe, if it was off by the difference, a single deviation of the smallest particle of subatomic material called a quark, you know what a quark is? It's the thing that makes up protons and neutrons. They literally said, it appears that the masses, if there was a deviation in the masses of the two lightest quarks, the up quark and the down quark, then the subatomic reality of our universe would not exist and there would be no matter anywhere in the cosmos. Okay, I was like, interesting. Moving on. Okay, I, I don't even know if y'all are interested at all. I'm giving it my best shot up here, but this was crazy to me. Cosmic fine-tuning. So su subatomic, now we're going global, okay? Turns out not just the distance of our planet from the sun, but the size of our planet matters. You see, if our planet was just a little bit smaller the electromagnetic field around our planet that also produces our atmosphere would not be strong enough to block the endless barrage of solar winds and solar radiation that is coming at us every second of every day, and we would be a barren wasteland worse than Mars. Whoever thinks about the size of our planet as being some sort of condition for life or solar winds not me, ever, okay? I have never thanked Jesus for the size of earth. Not one time. Turns out the size of our moon is very important for life to exist on earth. We have a strangely and uniquely sized moon. If you look across the cosmos in comparison to the size of our earth, our moon is gigantic. Why does that matter? Well, it stabilizes the access and the tilt of the earth like a rotisserie chicken at Costco. Perfectly rotating us in both directions. If the moon were any smaller, we would either be completely thrown off axis, the weather patterns would change so quickly that no life could exist. If it was bigger, we'd be constantly tilted one way all the time and one side of our planet would be a barren frozen ice cube and the other side would be a burning desert. The size of our moon matters to life on earth. Here's my favorite one. Check out Jupiter and Saturn. Turns out our very existence is dependent on Jupiter and Saturn. They're like cosmic linebackers, okay? Friends, in case you didn't know it, defenses win championships, okay? Here's, here's what I know. In a few weeks, the Georgia Bulldogs are about to dominate Ohio State. My Georgia Bulldogs because of our defense, okay? Turns out Jupiter and Saturn, these huge, massive gas planets are so huge that they suck up all the asteroids that come anywhere near us. Scientists estimate, <laughs> check this out, we would be 100,000 times more likely to be constantly pummeled by asteroids from space if Jupiter and Saturn did not exist. When was the last time you thanked Jesus for Jupiter and Saturn? I have never thanked him for Jupiter and Saturn. In 1908, 
an asteroid about the size of this room landed in Siberia. It leveled 80 million acres of trees. One asteroid the size of this room. The impact was felt in London. We are not exaggerating when we say we are alive on this planet right now because God put Jupiter and Saturn exactly where he did. Fine-tuning, fine-tuning everything. The more we discover has to be exactly the way it is for life to exist. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, all of them say, look, the odds are getting worse. The more that science is discovering, the more unlikely it is that, that life exists here. Carl Sagan wasn't just wrong. We are discovering thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things that must be just right, finely tuned, for any of us to be here. The likelihood of life existing in the cosmos, even though there are 10 septillion planets, is so tiny that it now seems impossible, not just for life to exist anywhere else, but for life to exist here. Here. It's amazing. This is the best, I'm trying to come up with, you know, I'm sitting in my office this week. I feel like I'm going to a college course trying to figure out how to explain this. And this is my best shot at explaining the odds of our life existing. Fine tuning. This is what it says. Okay. This right here is a watch, just a simple Swiss watch. Okay, the, the inside of this watch, it looks something like this when it's all put together. We'll show the photo of it all put together inside. If you open up the back, you know, watches are pretty complicated. You know, there's a lot of fine tuning that went into the engineering to make that watch work and for it to be on time, okay? Now, if you explode that watch and, you know, make all the pieces come apart, this is what each individual piece looks like. Now, just work with me here, okay? Let's pretend like everything in this bag, including the sand at the bottom, which would need to be melted to create the glass face of the watch to the steel wool to all the other little pieces, this is exactly what's needed to make that watch. Now, kids, work with me here, okay? Imagine, y'all ever use those things in the summer, those water balloon launchers? Things are awesome, right? I don't even know if they're legal anymore. I, you pull those suckers back, you can launch a water balloon like 200 yards. Now let's imagine we had the biggest water balloon launcher in existence and we took this bag of stuff and we launched it into the cosmos, into outer space. Now let's also imagine that somehow by some mere chance, every piece of this bag began to encounter heat and gravity and microscopic particles and space dust. And somehow over millennia and millennia and millennia of years, they all turned into exactly the exploded diagram of the watch. They turned in, we'll show it one more time. They turned it into those cogs and all those pieces and the switches. Somehow this bag, through chance, through coincidence, turned into that through heat and gravity and particles, okay? Now, there are 150 pieces. I looked it up in this watch. I have right here two die. I didn't even know these kind of die existed until last week. This is a 100-sided die. Pretty cool, right? This is a 50-sided die, okay? This watch is made up of stationary pieces and connecting pieces. 100 stationary pieces, 100, or 50 connecting pieces. 
I promise you I'm bringing this home. Stick with me. Merry Christmas, everybody. Just stick with me. We're going now to statistics class, okay? Now, just four, like assuming that this actually became the pieces that needed it to become to be creating a watch, you know, any watchmaker would tell you order matters. You got to put the first piece together with the second piece and the right connecting piece. So you got to roll a one on the die. Let's assume we got a one in 100 chance, right? Let's see what I roll. I'll just stop it so it doesn't keep going. I rolled an 86. Okay, missed it. All right, you know, one in 100 chance. Let's assume finally great. Rolled a one. Amazing. Now, because it has to be connected to piece number two, that means I got to roll a one on the 50 dice as well. So I roll a one on the 50. Oh, miracle, one in 50 chance, miracle of miracles. So, okay, roll number one, here are the odds. So one in 50 to roll a one and one in 100 to roll a one. You multiply those two. You got about a one in 5,000 chance. And now I know those odds are not quite right yet. Just stick with me. In the cosmos of the two first pieces of the watch finding each other and connecting. Okay, now I thought, okay, well, maybe, I mean, order matters, so I got to roll a two now. Wow, rolled a two, one in 100 chance of that. I got to roll a two on this one as well. Amazing, rolled a two on this one as well. So now you just add them together, you know, a one in 5,000 chance plus a one in 5,000 chance, you know, something like that. Uh, this is where you should be glad I'm a preacher and not a statistician because that's not how it works. We put a big X through that. Actually, how you calculate this because they have to be in the right order, it can't be any number on the die, is the next slide, it's one in 50 to the second power times one in 100 to the second power. So for me to roll a one on both dice and then a two on both dice is a one in 25 million chance. I got one in 25 million. Just for, we're just talking for the first like two or three pieces of the watch to connect, okay? Just keep going up, right? 50 connecting pieces to 100 pieces. So the equation looks like this. One in 50 to the 50th times one in 100 to the 50th. Uh, here's what those numbers look like. I don't know the name of the first number. Uh, the name of the second number is one over one Google. It's 100 zeros. 100 to the you know, 50th power, whatever, is, is 100 zeros. It's a Google. That's where you get the name Google. <laughs> So when you search something on Google, they give you a bajillion options, right? So now here's the deal. Those are fractions. Those aren't numbers. Those are like tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of the number one. And when you multiply those numbers together, because I tried it, here's what you're going to get on the internet or on your calculator. One over INF or ERR. That is infinity or zero. Any honest statistician or scientist on the planet would say, uh, that's statistically impossible odds from you to roll a one through 100 in order with a one through 50 here for this. Let's not even talk about the odds of this becoming the right size cogs and pieces, but just for this watch to get put together. Statistically impossible, okay? So we're talking about here. Now, that's how the odds work. Paul Davies, an atheist, Listen to what he wrote in 2007 in the New York Times. He said, scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth. The universe looks suspiciously like a fix. 
The issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years, physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting examples of all too convenient coincidences and special features in the underlying laws of physics, biology, and of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life and hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them by the slightest degree and the consequences would be lethal. Life would not exist on our planet. In the Stanford Encyclopedia of Physics and Psychology, in their article on fine-tuning, again, these are non, these people do not believe in divine design, but they wrote, they said, many researchers, we've got the quote, and scientists now believe that the fine-tuning of the universe's laws, constants, biological matter, and boundary conditions for life calls for inferring the existence of a divine designer or a multiverse. Buckle up. A vast collection of universes with differing laws and conditions for existence. This conclusion rests on the idea that the existence of life is statistically impossible given all the requirements discovered in fine-tuning research. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Physics and Psychology Google it, look it up. Okay, people, here's what they just said in case you missed it. You have two options tonight. Thanos and Tony Stark or Jesus Christ. Make your choice. They literally use the word multiverse, okay? There's like, there are no chances. There's no chance, statistically speaking, based on fine-tuning, that life could exist here. So there must be other dimensions where life exists with different conditions, okay? Friends, Romans 1.20, don't miss this. Listen to what God says through his word. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. If you look at the research, and look at the research and say, well, I guess this is all just, I mean, life's here, so clearly it was a very unlikely coincidence. That is like a two-year-old with their fingers in the ears going, nah, 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 I'm not listening. I don't want to look around at this world that exists right in front of my eyes. That's why Romans says, you don't have an excuse. There is a divine designer. He's there, he's real, he's alive. Psalm 19, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Follow me here, don't miss this. Do you know who some of the very first people were who discovered, according to the Bible, that God sent the light of the world, the sunrise of heaven had come? Do you know some of the very first people who figured it out? They were scientists. The three wise men, the astronomers, the Persian astronomers, they saw a star in the sky, the star of Bethlehem. They're like, that's new. We already know there's a God because there's no way this could happen without a God. And so these scientists, these Persian wise men, follow this star. God symbolizes the sunrise of heaven, the light of the world, the light of life to the entire world with a star. Woo! I know, me too. I, I was like, I can't believe it. Unbelievable, right? Now, here's where Christmas, why, what does this matter for you? 
So, like, so what? Here's the key, friends. Not only did God fine-tune the cosmos and the tiniest cell in your body and subatomic matter, you are not an accident. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You are not the result of some cosmic coincidence. That's impossible. You were divinely designed in the image of God. Period. End of discussion. But like all of us, we turned away from God. Therefore, death entered the scene. Brokenness entered the scene. Anger, war, revenge, carnage entered the world. That's why people die, because we turned away from the source of light and life. And so God says, all right, I gotta fine tune one more thing. Do you know what Christmas is? It's God's fine-tuned solution for the salvation of the world. He gave us exactly what we needed, Jesus Christ. It's him saying, the only thing that can rescue you is me, so I'm coming for you in the form of my son. And yeah, I created the cosmos. I created Adam and Eve. It's no big deal for me to come through the womb of a virgin. It's no big deal for me to create another human, to embody that human, to be that human Jesus Christ, to die as the sacrifice of sin for the world. That's no big deal for God. Look, this, this watch is so much simpler than you. But he made you. And he sent Jesus to rescue you. He literally unlocked the door of every prison that every person is in. He unlocked the door of death over your life and your eternity. And he said, will you please walk out? The door is open. I sent a savior. His name is Jesus. That's what Christmas is about. Go, be free. Don't stay in that cell. Write, begin to write a new chapter. Does, your past doesn't matter. Your mistakes, your failures, your brokenness, your, all the things of your life that have imprisoned you in your mind and your heart. There is freedom in Christ. There is new life in Christ. There's a new beginning now, but you have to believe he exists and he's come to save you. Friends, we're about to stand and sing together Silent Night. We're gonna light some candles to celebrate the light of the world. But before we do, I wanna give you an option, an opportunity to put your faith in Christ. And I just wanna ask to give everybody in the room a moment of privacy. So with all eyes shut and heads bowed, I wanna lead you in a prayer because salvation comes through faith alone, not by works. And if you wanna step into saving faith tonight, I want you to pray with me. It's gotta be from your heart. It's gotta be your words, but it needs to go something like this. It just needs to start off simply by saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to rescue me. Say to him in your heart, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. In your heart, say to him, I believe you rose from the dead. In your heart, say to him, I believe that by faith in you, I can have new life, never-ending, eternal life. 
cling to him by faith. Friends, with all eyes closed and heads bowed, if you just prayed with me, would you please just do me a favor and let me know, stick your hand up in the air. That was a step that you took today, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. God sees you right now. He is with you, he is for you, he loves you so much. He fine-tuned this cosmos and he fine-tuned your salvation. Friends, if that's you, I wanna encourage you now, please text the word HILLS to 51400. We wanna send you a Bible. We wanna get you some resources to help you on this journey of faith. You can't walk this journey alone. My prayer is for you as you head into the rest of this year and next year that you would encounter God in ways that you never have before. Friends, let's all stand together. The ushers are gonna come down the aisle. We're gonna light our candles and close our our time by singing Silent Night together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.